friends, this is Joanna Brooks, fellow traveler in Mormon feminism and author of the Book of Mormon Girl, with a special request for you. You know, since the beginning of the Mormon feminist movement, we have published our own books, we have supported our own art projects, our own intellectuals, and I'm asking you one more time to pony up in support of one of our Mormon feminist sisters who I think is the most exciting and soon to be most accomplished public historian in Mormonism today. That's our girl, Lindsay Hanson Park, who tears it up on this podcast each week, bringing us incredible insights about the Mormon past, including polygamy and its persistent influence on the way we live our lives today. Lindsay does her thing, bringing us brilliance for pennies. What does she make? Cents on the dollar that every real Mormon podcaster makes, if that. It's up to us. It's up to us. If Mormon feminist history matters to you, if having incisive, intelligent critique of racial inequality, gender inequality in the Mormon church matters to you, will you support this podcast? As Mormon feminists have always done for each other, we've always published our own books. We've always supported our own arts. Let's pitch in to support one of our own, doing crucial intellectual work that's going to stand the test of time. That's right. Go to feministmormonhousewivespodcast.org. Look for the donate button and use PayPal or whatever other means are at your disposal to become a monthly subscriber. Join me in becoming a subscriber to this podcast. Just $10 a month, $20 a month, and you can hold your head high and know that you're contributing to a long history of Mormon sisters doing it for themselves. Thank you. First thing in the morning when I get out of bed I say my prayers and come downstairs to see my father dear Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series where we try to understand the practice of Mormon plural marriage. And this is part two of a two-part series about the FLDS. Like I mentioned before, there's so much information, just so much on the FLDS that it was really difficult to condense it into one episode. Even two is a stretch. But today we're going to cover the beliefs and um, sort of practices of the FLDS. The first episode covered sort of the history up until Warren Jeffs. And then after this, Nadine Hansen, who is an attorney who has prosecuted Warren Jeffs, will come on and she will talk about the legal implications and sort of where Warren Jeffs is now. Really quick, if you want to meet me in Salt Lake, I'm going to be in town on March 14th at the Community of Christ building. We are doing a conference with Sunstone on race, and I would encourage anyone that's in the Salt Lake area to try to make a trip, especially Mormon scholars. Uh, it, this is a conference that we are organizing to help Mormons of color share their experiences as Mormons. Normally, when we talk about race in the LDS church, we like to sort of delegate the sort of corner of priesthood issues, the priesthood ban and temple ban. But obviously, issues of race actually affect people's lived lives, their entire full lived lives, and it's not just about the priesthood ban, although that is part of it. So uh, I would encourage everyone to come out 
show your support, show people of color in the church that we care, show up, listen, hear what they are telling us. So that's March 14th. You can find out more information on sunstone.org. So here we go with part two. And you should know that there's going to be multiple trigger warnings for this podcast. We're going to be talking about abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, racism and bigotry, rape, molestation, those kind of things. So if you cannot handle those, then I would encourage you to turn off this episode. In 1963, Helen B. Andelin wrote a book that many feminists know of called Fascinating Womanhood. This was said to be a response to second wave feminism. And it's sort of this book that outlines how to be a good wife. Mormon feminism's own Holly Welker had this to say about the book in an article she published in Bitch Magazine. Quote, Call it a feminist coincidence. Two books published in 1963 examine gender, sex, and marriage, but arrive at diametrically opposite conclusions. In The Feminist Mystique, Betty Friedan complains that, quote, The only passion, the only pursuit, the only goal a woman is permitted is the pursuit of a man, end quote. Meanwhile, Helen Andelin's fascinating womanhood urges women to embrace that primary passion because it leads to ultimate fulfillment and complete happiness. We all know how the feminine mystique has changed the world for countless women. But fascinating womanhood, while lesser known than Frieden's polemic, has had its own powerful impact on notions of women and their potential. Like the best-selling how-to guide for would-be wives that followed in its wake, The Rules, The Surrendered Wife, Andalyn's fascinating womanhood told women what they wanted and explained how to get it. Its central thesis asserted that the most essential gender difference is that, quote, Love is more important to a woman and admiration is more important to a man, end quote. According to Andalyn, nothing motivates men more than pride and nothing causes them more suffering than a blow to it. Men's needs to be admired is so overriding that they cannot endure criticism or even rational conversation, which is why she informs women that, quote, it is better to surrender, surrender your point of view to a man than to win an argument, end quote. Instead, men must be manipulated. They might realize that they're being manipulated, but as long as this manipulation is perpetuated by saucy, pert, childlike women, men are okay with it. The means by which women manipulate men into loving, desiring, and protecting them are familiar. Fascinating womanhood envisions women as weak, dependent, submissive, selfless, and in need of protection from a laundry list of dangers enumerated by Andalyn. There's abduction and rape, sometimes followed by brutality and murder, as well as vicious dogs, snakes, and high precipice, a deep canyon, or other dangers of nature, and even unreal dangers such as strange noises, spiders, mice, and even dark shadows. Women must also sympathize with their husband's difficulties while never expecting sympathy in return. Because a woman who reveals the truth about her emotional life risks injuring her husband's fragile pride by forcing him to see that he is not always an ideal mate. End quote. Starting in about the 1970s, the FLDS women discovered the book Fascinating Womanhood. They were intrigued by it. This is something that they, uh, this is just the sort of field guide that they needed. Uh, Karen Barlow, who was an FLDS school teacher, taught a course in the FLDS school using fascinating womanhood as a textbook. She would say, quote, you can't change your husband, only yourself, end quote. This course taught girls to be skilled in the feminine arts of household, caring for children, handling money, and doing more than is required 
Get out of the leadership role. Stop giving him suggestions. If you obey your husband, even if you disagree, things will turn out all right. Adapt to the conditions your husband provides for you, and you don't have preconceived ideas about what you want or plan for your children. This is the kind of stuff that began to take shape. Now, of course, this is no stranger to Mormonism. Lots of different Mormon groups, including the FL, including the LDS, have their sort of own fascinations, if you will, with fascinating womanhood. But it's interesting to note that the FLDS taught this as actual textbook. This brings us to one of the doctrines in the FLDS Church, and that is something called the Keep Sweet Doctrine. Keep sweet was a favorite phrase used by Uncle Rulon, Rulon Jeffs, um, and then by Warren Jeffs, both prophets in the FLDS Church. Here is how Rulon Jeffs described the meaning of the Keep Sweet Doctrine in a talk on December 6, 1991, in Sandy, Utah. Quote, I want you all to understand the continual use of the two words, keep sweet, means keep the Holy Spirit of the Lord until you are full of it. Only those who will have it will survive the judgments of God, which are about to be poured out. Keeping sweet no matter what is what is a matter of life or death as we approach the day of the great judgment that are to go over the earth. Let us get it and keep it. You don't turn it off and on. It must be a permanent thing in our very nature and a part of our character, end quote. Now I'm going to play a clip for you of how Warren Jeffs explains the doctrine. May it be so simple this time that you will not miss it. And you will see we have always been taught to keep sweet. We come to what is called the Beatitudes. People have wondered what the word beatitude means. I simply say to you, these things must be your attitude or spirit. They must be in you as your way of life and thinking. Very simple, isn't it? There is an order to this training that if we do certain things, we'll receive certain blessings. And as he say, bless, says, blessed is such and such a type person, don't miss the picture. All of these things describe one person. That one person must be you. You and I must be all of these things. There's an order. Our Savior begins by declaring faith, repentance, baptism, and the Holy Ghost. After you go through those first ordinances and apply those beginning principles to get baptized, then you should have felt and you should still feel the fire of the Holy Ghost burning in you and the presence of that sweet spirit brings a remission of your sins cleans you up 
But all is not done just being baptized. We yet have the personal work of changing our character, what we are, into the likeness of God. These beatitudes are the attitudes or characteristics of godliness. And each one is an exertion of obedience and love. Blessed are the people that do these things. And then he names the reward. Rewarding your faith, your exertion. So we're not just searching for a peacemaker. We must become that peacemaker. That pure in heart person and so on. And our prayers won't work. And our keep sweet effort won't work. If we hold on to even one bad feeling against anyone, anything, or even against ourselves, go make it right. Sacrifice those bad feelings. Then the Lord will hear your prayers. He next says, don't argue with your enemies. Agree with them. Keep sweet toward them. He talks about immorality. Have clean thoughts. Don't even let the thought of desiring immorality to be in your mind or heart. All of this is part of our keep sweet training. To FLDS women, keeping sweet means to swallow your emotions, to swallow your pride, to swallow your jealousies, to swallow your anger. You're not supposed to show any emotion. You're not supposed to rock the boat. You're not supposed to make any trouble for anyone. You definitely don't criticize. You don't ask questions. And you most certainly don't find fault, especially in your leaders and your husbands. You should accept your lifestyle without complaint. Complaining is against the keep sweet doctrine. You need to not only be nice, but you need to be happy about being nice. If LDS women were to put an FLDS mantra in vinyl on their wall, it would be, keep sweet. In the late 1990s, the FLDS published a newsletter for the members, and the masthead included, quote, with every breath, keep sweet, no matter what. And in the Bountiful Compound in Canada, keep sweet is supposedly spelled out in white stones at the entrance of the school. It said that you could find this um, on walls in FLDS homes. In fact, in the Yearning for Zion Ranch in Texas, there are street signs that say, keep sweet forevermore. When Rule on Jeff's compound in Sandy was sold in 1999, uh, it was noticed that the walls of his main house were decorated with wallpaper that actually said, keep sweet no matter what. Now, of course, not being satisfied with anything halfway, I've been calling this a keep sweet doctrine, but of course this was just a mantra until Warren Jeff st stepped up and actually turned it into a commandment. He would say, quote, If you're keeping sweet no matter what, you are a person ready to give your own will and just obey the priesthood over you. In order to keep sweet, it requires a sacrifice of our feelings. To be loyal to Heavenly Father, to truly love Him and obey Him, you must keep sweet no matter what. If your feelings can be disturbed and you simply need more of the Spirit of God to have and earn more of that sweet spirit, 
You must pay the price. The price is sacrifice. Set aside any feeling or thought that disturbs the Spirit of God. Keeping sweet means saying your prayers and obeying the priesthood over you. End quote. Now, of course, as the approaching millennium was happening at the end of the 90s to 2000, Rulon Jeffs is prophesying the end of the world. They start to make the doctrine of keep sweet a matter of life and death. And another another phrase that we would see on vinyl, if they had the same sort of cultural decorating habits as LDS women, would be immune to gloom. Immune to gloom is another phrase that they use. So basically the ideas uh, of FLD FLDS women are about what you'd expect. So obviously you follow the prophet no matter what. You follow the priesthood no matter what. And in fact, you belong to the prophet. Warren Jeffs would say uh, in March of 1998, quote, the reality of our family is that all our children belong to the prophet. You ladies do also, end quote. Now, ladies is a phrase that Warren Jeffs used, the FLDS use. A lot of um, fundamentalist groups will use the term ladies to refer to women. Another another thing designated for women is their whole purpose is to have children. We spelled this out in the series already about how necessary it is to have children all the time. Warren Jeffs would say this explicitly, that there, that women's whole purpose was to have children. And of course, to do this, you must live plural marriage. Here's what Warren Jeffs said in January of 1996, quote, the purpose for entering into plural marriage is so that a man can raise up more children to the Lord. In heaven, there is no monogamy, no man with just one wife. The only way she can be married is to be married to a man who has more than one wife, end quote. And of course, following the one-man rule, this is sort of an LDS idea too. You are saved through your husbands. Your husband hearkens to God and you hearken to your husband as an LDS woman. Same thing in the LDS church, only it's a little bit more explicitly spelled out. The husband actually follows the priesthood, which is the prophet. And you, of course, follow your husband. And this, Warren taught, was because Eve in the garden cursed women to follow their husband. He would say, in November of 1995, quote, the curse placed on women was that when they had children, they would suffer nearly to death. The blessing on the woman was, and the only way she could ever be happy was, that she would let her husband, a faithful man, rule over her. That was the only way back to Heavenly Father for the woman. The woman is to obey her husband as she obeys the prophet, end quote. Now, you don't just obey him, but you have to please your husband, Warren Jeffs would say in 1998, knowing you're pleasing your husband, your head brings you a heaven, end quote. So you find a heaven on earth by pleasing your husband. You're not supposed to tell your husband what to do whatsoever at all. You're not supposed to command him in anything. He is supposed to command you. You are supposed to do your housework. The housework is was a responsibility for women and children. And you should start way before you start having babies. Another thing that's interesting um, that's alleged by some some researchers in the FLDS is that you're not supposed to have girlfriends, meaning you cannot hold friendships with other girls. This is what Warren Jeff said in November of 1997, quote, do not hold on to your friendships with other girls because then you will fall short of your eternal blessings. If you hold on to friendship with your girlfriends, you will not love your sister wives. Your sister wives must be your best friends because they are part of your husband. Your preparation for this is in your father's home. A girl learns to love all her mothers, and you must love every mother and call them mother, end quote. Of course, they take something that we have in the LDS church, too, that you have to teach your children, and if you don't teach your children the gospel, the sins will be on the head of the parents. 
but in the FLDS case, it will not be on the head of the father. It will be on the head of the mother for failing to teach the children. You, of course, have to do what the father wants in all things. He literally presides, and his rule is law. Warren Jeff said in uh, December of 1997, quote, It is a mother's duty to teach the children that everything in the home belongs to father and that all things you're doing in the home is to build up father. Mothers say, this is what father wants, and she is always turning the, the children to those over her, end quote. You're not supposed to socialize. You're supposed to avoid it. Brigham Young, here's what Warren Jeff said in 1997. Brigham Young names one weakness in women. When they get married, they're always wanting to party or go visiting, attend socials, and do everything the training of their children. And that is why so many children have struggles and fail, because the mothers attend to everything but this duty of working with the children, end quote. So, of course, he says, you know, if the children struggle, it's because the moms want to party. They want to have friends. They want to be selfish and socialize. Some of the ways that they get women to prepare for this is um, they have them pray from an early age to be prepared for marriage. So they include it in women's prayers to pray to be married and to pray to be prepared for marriage. There's this whole culture about how being sacrificed will bring forth the blessings of heaven, right? So having an assigned marriage will be a test of faith. Here's what Warren Jeff says in March of 1998, quote, Your testimony will be tested by how you get married. If you exert your faith and obedience so the Lord can speak through the prophet on your behalf, that will give you an anchor to your soul, that whatever you go through in the new family, you know you are doing the will of God in overcoming the dross within, end quote. Of course, you're supposed to do this by conquering all your feelings. If you are challenged, you sacrifice your feelings on the altar of faith. If you're a young lady, you absolutely cannot socialize with boys. Here is what Warren Jeff says, quote, Don't go that sad road, young ladies. Don't be wooed and be tricked by the cute and cool and cunning boys or men trying to get you to like them. I have been instructed that any young man who will not leave our girls alone is to be sent away and not be allowed to be among us, even before they destroy the girl. Don't date secretly with boys. You're just tricking yourself, ladies. You want a husband who's close to the prophet. A girl who wants eternal life will want this kind of man. You want, you must be a family in heaven. You can't get there alone, so don't play around with your eternal salvation. Turn to the prophet who can read the hearts of men. The prophet will lead you to a man who will exalt you. And when temptation comes into your mind, you must pray to the prophet. End quote. Now, of course, this is something that Rebecca Musser talks about in The Witness War Red. She talks about how she had fallen in love with a, a boy and believed they had snuck out one night or they were hiking and he kisses her. A completely normal, innocent kiss. And of course, she felt damned. She felt damned because of that. Something else that's very interesting that has to do with the dress styles. I'm going to talk about the dress and habits of, of the people in the community. Um, Carl Holm was someone who left FLDS faith about 30 years ago. Together with his wife, Joni, they raised some foster children that have escaped the FLDS. And according to Carl, Jeff's told the foster children that every bit of your body must be covered and that different pastel color dresses identify you with your family. So um, you see those pictures of women all in their pastel dresses. Well, according to this report, each colored dresses identify wives of the same husband. 
So even outside when these women are socializing, their colors of their style of dresses are marking them, marking the territory of the man that they are associated with. Of course, they wear long sleeves and skirts to cover their religious garments that are long sleeve, those sort of old school garments that Joseph Smith had that have now, you know, the the LDS church has changed into more modern garments, but the FLDS still holds to an old style. As Rebecca Muster talks a lot about in her book, which her book is so named for, people in the FLDS are forbidden to wear red or black. Jesus is supposed to wear those colors. Those colors are reserved to him. He'll return in a red-colored robe, so it's completely off-limits. Black, of course, is a color for Satan, so that is also completely off-limits as well. Now, everyone likes to talk about the polygamous bump, the bump in their hair. Um, it's like this goose sweep on top of their heads. And it's said that... Uh, the more righteous they are, the higher that they get. It's sort of like their crown of righteousness. Now, hair in the FLDS and in some other fundamentalist communities are important. They are a prized asset to to women. In fact, this is sort of where their vanity gets to be tied up is in their hair, even though they're not supposed to be vain. Not only is their hair a symbol of righteousness, the more hair they have, the more righteous they are supposed to be. And I'm not just talking about hair on the head. This comes into all aspects of body hair, which includes eyebrows and um, other other parts of body hair. According to Carolyn Jessup, who managed to escape, who escaped from the FLDS um, and wrote a book detailing her experiences, she said that tweezing the eyebrow is allowed, but, quote, they just don't do it because they think it's more righteous not to. Primping is seen as being vain, end quote. They're also not allowed to cut their hair. And this is sort of a biblical representation. You use your hair to wash the feet of the Savior. And I have talked to women who have left FLDS Church who have said that when they cut their hair for the first time, that was probably the most transformative sort of hard thing to do because their hair is their prized possession, but it's also sort of a sense of freedom. Again, when Christ comes during the second coming, they're supposed to take their long hair and wash his feet. They they take this from a passage in 1 Corinthians, which says, quote, if a woman has long hair, it is, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering, end quote. And they, you know, they're not supposed to be vain with it, but they are allowed to use expensive shampoos, conditioning treatments and hairspray, but they do not dye or perm their hair. Now, again, I said in the first episode, but someone who, a former FLDS member, says that their dresses are supposed to represent the pioneers coming across the prairies to be symbolically coming back into Zion. They need to dress as if they were on the wagon train west because that symbolizes real sacrifice. Another doctrine in the FLDS church that is particularly damaging to families is called the law of placement. And this started to be introduced as early as the 1940s. So this was before that both of the Jeffs ruled. Um, it was said that this was the way that the priesthood council controlled the number of wives men were given. Because, of course, you will run into, in any polygamous community, you'll run into the shortage of women and an excess of men. And so you have to figure out ways to deal with this. And of course, it can't be homosexuality because that is strictly prohibited and forbidden. 
So they were kicking around ideas with the law of placement in the 1940s, but in the 1950s, this law of placement started to be used. Courting was allowed prior to marriages. People could date. Some girls were placed, which means they were starting to be arranged before they were of age to date. And of course, they could turn down the men at this time, but not without severe, you know, social consequences or a lot of fear. And of course, as the FLDS develops, Leroy Johnson, Ruland Jeffs, and Warren Jeffs sort of define this practice and they make it a core FLDS doctrine. So to have a proper marriage, one that's eternal, it has to be assigned by the prophet. So you don't get to decide your heart. The prophet does. Here's what Warren Jeffs said in 1995, quote, you only get it married and be a priesthood family if the prophet says whom you should marry. No dating, courting, or choosing your own spouse is allowed. If a boy and girl agree to get married and just go do it, they can never be gods because you must be married by revelation through the prophet, end quote. Now, this is important. We see this now. Nadine is going to be talking about this in her episode about what happens when, you know, Warren Jeffs is now in prison and he's making these edicts. He dissolves all the marriages now currently. So no one's allowed to have sex because they're not allowed to be married. Warren Jeffs really believes, or at least he's really perpetuating the idea that marriages can only happen. Romance, interaction between the sexes can only happen with prophetic stamp of approval. Now, Warren Jeffs talks about this. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a quote about this. He says, quote, priesthood marriage is always by revelation through the prophet. It has always been this way. And this is what you look forward to. In priesthood marriage, the Lord makes the love. In the world marriage, they date and try to figure out if they like each other, then decide if they'll get married. In priesthood marriage, the Lord appoints it and he makes the love. He puts it in that husband and wife for each other. And it grows as they become obedient, as they obey the prophet together. End quote. Now this brings us into the doctrine of the law of Cain. I'm going to play a clip of... Warren Jeffs talking about the law of Cain, because you obviously cannot marry outside your race for this reason. We rehearsed last time that the place of the Garden of Eden was Jackson County, Missouri. The source of that information was Heber C. Kimball, were taught that those men who knew Joseph only taught the people what Joseph taught them. We're also taught that Adamondiamon is the valley just north of Jackson County here in North America in Missouri. There was where Adam was driven out of the Garden of Eden and offered sacrifice. And also what happened to that people in that time through that Negro race. In the depiction of this story, I try to present the lessons that apply to us. It appears, says Brigham Young, that Abel was prospered with more than what Cain had, because Cain was jealous of all that Abel had, all his possessions. Him loving Satan, loving evil, doing evil, and yet wanting the reward, just like many today, they want the world and heaven too. It goes on to say, the book of Jasher says, he took the metal plow and struck his brother and killed him and buried him in the earth. Then the voice of God came to him, 
Cain, where is your brother Abel? And Cain said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And then the Lord said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood cries unto me from the ground. And now thou shalt be cursed from the earth which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And as most disobedient people do, they search around who is really to blame here. And he said, Satan tempted me. It's his fault. Satan tempted me because of my brother's flocks, and I was wroth or angry also. For his offering thou didst accept and not mine. It's your fault, Heavenly Father, that I'm angry. This is how the rebellious are, always blaming someone else. The apostate, always blaming someone else for their misery, not themselves. My punishment is greater than I can bear. And he said, when people find me, they'll kill me. And the Lord told him he would put a mark on him, that no man would kill him. He was driven out from among the rest of the children of men. And the reason I take time for this story is because through the seed of Cain, the rest of Father Adam's children were corrupted. This was the reason that Cain was not killed, that he could start the population of a people who would represent Lucifer in the earth. God would have his priesthood, his representation. Lucifer had to have a people, representatives in the earth, to do his work. And thus, Cain's posterity continued, and it talks about growing and becoming more corrupt. It appears this mortal people, the Negro that we know today, became quite an influence among the people before the flood. Because the scriptures say that mankind loves Satan more than God. In other words, the devil revealing himself through that seed enticed the rest of mankind, the rest of Father Adam's children. So that we read in the scriptures, the Lord had to keep sending prophets, even in Adam's day, to teach the people and call upon them to repent. Cain has been alive on the earth, in some form of translation to where he cannot die and he has been a tool of the devil to do a work the full extent of it will be known later but I'm voicing to you that through the Negro race the evil powers have continued in the earth there have been wicked people of other races but through this race, 
evil has continued. So, of course, if you marry someone outside your race, specifically someone of African descent, then you not only can you never get into heaven, but you cannot even be part of the work. This is what the FLDS calls their group. They call it the work. You cannot even be part of the work. And here's the thing. If you're a parent in the FLDS church, you don't really have a lot of control over who your child marries. What I mean is your child doesn't have the free will to do it, but neither do you. You cannot object to a marriage that is specified by the prophet. If you do, you're considered being disobedient and you not only lose the risk of being ousted by your community, you risk actually being physically forced to leave. You lose your home. Since all property belongs to the UEP, the United Effort Plan, you will lose your home. You will actually lose your family. So if you see your 13-year-old daughter being married off and you say, no, we can't do this, you, as a woman, would lose your children. All your children would be taken away and assigned to someone else, and you would lose your husband. If you were a man, it would be the same thing. Your wives and children are considered property, and they would be assigned to another person. Here's an anecdote that I found on that blog spot I told you about, FLDS 101. tells uh, the story of an anonymous FLDS woman, quote, There was once a girl born of a good family who was good, obedient, and prayerful. She loved her prophet and yearned above all things to become a mother in Zion as the wife of a good priesthood man. But this girl was also mortal, and she beheld one day a boy who was good and kind and perfect. Now the good girl knows she has she is to have no contact or even thoughts about this boy, and every time she thinks of him, pushes the thought aside and thinks of her prophet instead. She wants to be good and do what is right. But somehow, no matter what, how hard she fights, the girl finally has to admit she loves this boy. Her only hope is to be good enough that maybe someday, if it's the Lord's will, she may give, be given to this boy as his eternal life. But time wears on and the good girl is weak. She knows in her heart that the boy would only ask her if she would leave with him forever. Her parents are suspicious and watch her and guard her in the name of protecting her and her salvation. Finally, when she cannot take it any more, she asks the father how to stop loving someone. Her father asks who she wants to stop loving, and the good girl tells him that she wants to stop loving the boy so she can give herself to her husband, whomever that might be. The good girl's father uses her confession and plea for help as a weapon against the boy, taking the matter before the prophet. The girl's father pleads and pleads with the prophet to marry his daughter off soon, for he fears she will be lost. So the prophet sends a man over for the good girl, a man who is well known by the family, for he is also married to her sister. The family knows he has been cruel to the sister, starving her into obedience when she was obedient already in the name of the priesthood. Yet they hope he has changed. He has to be kind to the sister. and He has been more kind to the sister in recent years. Maybe he will be kind to this girl too. The good girl marries the man with the glory of heaven in her mind's eye, and when at the end of the ceremony she turns her head away from his kiss, she is greeted with laughter for her pure and innocent ways. The man grasps the good girl's face in both his hands so she cannot turn away from the kiss. The audience looks on happily as they seal their vows with a kiss. After all, the good girl said the words, Of my own free will and choice, didn't she? It must be true. She gave up the boy to do what was right, didn't she? This must be what she wanted. End quote. Now, that's that's the story a former FLDS, an FLDS anonymous person wrote. This speaks to something that is sort of used 
in all of Mormonism. It's it's certainly not exceptional to Mormonism, but it's it's something that can be used. Here here is how Mormon doctrine can be used to exploit and harm someone. So this idea of eternal families, the family is highly valued in FLDS just as it is in all Mormon sects. It's the foundational system of the belief. However, in order to protect this family, there's a highly restricted freedom of choice, and it ends up with these restrictions actually destroying families more than it helps uh, preserve them. So families can be eternal in the FLDS church, but only under certain conditions. The family must be FLDS. So think of what that means in terms of the family of marrying outsiders, in terms of having someone leave, or maybe having extended family that is not FLDS. You cannot be an eternal family if not. Men must receive the Melchizedek priesthood. This authority has to be bestowed by the prophet himself. So if you do not have the Melchizedek priesthood, your whole family will not be eternal. Your family has to be created by the prophet, like I just said. Marriages have marriages have to be arranged, and they can only be made by appointment of the prophet. You have to live plural marriage. That's a given to, to be an eternal family. And you have to be faithful and obey the prophet in all things. No father can go make up his own rules. He has to get the rules from the prophet. And then everyone is supposed to follow him. So if the prophet gives specific prescriptions for your own family's life, you have to follow them. You have to live in harmony and keep sweet. This is what Warren Jeff said in 1995, quote, In heaven, everyone is organized into families. If you've done evil, fought and quarreled, you will live separate. Here you earn the right to live as a family in the next life. The righteous and faithful and faithful are organized in the family and are in perfect harmony. Death doesn't separate the family unless you are rebellious. If wicked, you won't live with the faithful in a family. Also, after this life, the prophet, being righteous in this life is not enough. The prophet actually has to give you and your family approval to get into heaven. You cannot be a god and go to heaven unless you get permission from the prophet. These are pretty narrow prescriptions. Maybe they don't sound that narrow because a lot of them sort of mimic and mirror the LDS doctrine. But we have to remember that even in the LDS church, uh, these temple marriage ideals can actually destroy families. I know a lot of people that have left the church whose families have cut them off. We hear stories about gay kids still in 2015 being kicked out of their homes for being gay. Um, we have many, many, many stories of people not letting family members in to watch their own weddings and this causing rifts and hurt feelings for years and years and years. I mean, these things that are meant to protect the family actually really narrow down the definition of family. And if you stray from it, it really, it really uh, limits how families interact. Well, this is so much more so amplified in the FLDS who have tighter prescriptions and steeper punishments if you break these examples. And so, of course, there are terrible, tragic stories of, you know, people messing up once or like in the story that this woman shared anonymously, she is trying to overcome her wicked desires and her, the boy she's in love with is punished for it and she is married off right away. So there is no room to be authentic. There's no room to celebrate each family member for who they are and just like let your family sort of find out who they are and what they like and what they like to do. It's very narrowly prescribed. When a daughter is married, 
she is not considered part of her father's family anymore. He has no claim on her whatsoever at all. Again, women and children belong to the church. So in essence, everybody belongs to the church. The prophet controls your decisions. But if you are married, you are no longer supposed to be taken care of or, you know, in any way counseled by your father. She is now property of her husband's family. And after this life, uh, the, it's the fathers that are supposed to bring their families forth in the first resurrection. If this father is deemed to be unfaithful, like I said, his family can be taken away. And, and, and we're talking like within 24 hours. You could make one mistake. You could criticize a leader. And in within 24 hours, your women and children will be moved out of your home and given to another man. One FLDS member wrote, quote, I had the experience as a child of my mother remarrying several times. I got to feel firsthand what it was like to be told, quote, He is not your father anymore. This is your priesthood father, your only father. I accepted it and pre pretended it was so. Then my father changed again and again. This whole experience hurt me very deeply, end quote. Um, the writer of FLDS Blogspot notes that there is no such thing as seeking after the lost sheep. And instead, he said, the author says, quote, they turn their backs on them, let them stray and forget about them. Those who are shunned most often lose their faith in the FLDS beliefs, but they don't lose their love for their families, end quote. You know, if you watch the, uh, there's a documentary about the Lost Boys, I'm going to link to it. It's called Sons of Perdition. And it's, it's so heartbreaking to watch because these are the, the boys that have been kicked out on various infractions. And you'll hear them, you know, they'll hear some old primary songs that they grew up with. And even though these kids are out, you know, experimenting, experimenting with drugs and alcohol and, and trying to find a way on this, this path with, through this whole sense of loss, they will hear a primary song and, you know, they'll start singing along because it's something so familiar to them. And they talk about how much they miss their families. And no matter how they try to struggle and get back on their feet, it comes back to this, this feeling of their families. And I'm actually going to be doing an interview with a young man that has left the FLDS church. So he's going to be coming on soon. Of course, anyone that has never been a Mormon is considered a Gentile. And Gentiles are very evil in the FLDS church. They are evil, and uh, the television and radio are considered sort of Satan's tools. So, of course, those are forbidden. FLDS are taught that Gentiles are idol worshippers because of these things. They have TV, jewelry, carvings, pictures, etc. These They're worshipping idols, and they are evil. And, of course, the worst Gentiles in the world are the African Americans. Here is what Warren Jeff said in 1995. How has the devil used the Negro race in our day? Today, the big neat thing among the young people is the rock music, heavy metal, heavy metal music, the rap music. Even the white people that play it were taught through the Negro. The music from the Gentile world with the fast beat and bad words is the black race. If you partake of the ways of the world today, you are partaking of the ways of the black race. End quote. Now, uh, this doctrine is so horrific. Again, I played a quote from that, but I'm going to play you another quote right here. When will the Negro get their blessings? It will be after all other spirits who never heard the gospel have a chance to receive their blessings by proxy in the temple. They will receive their blessings after 
death, before the resurrection, after all other spirits have had the privilege of these blessings. Now please understand, the Negro can be baptized. I'll read Brigham Young's words on that. Again, teachers, the reason I'm going into this detail, the children might ask you these questions. I want you to be armed with the truth. In the kingdom of God on the earth, the Africans cannot hold one particle of power in government. The subjects, the rightful servants of the residue of the children of Adam, and the residue of the children through the benign influence of the Spirit of the Lord, have the privilege of seeing to the posterity of Cain. Inasmuch it is the, will, the Lord's will, they should receive the Spirit of God by baptism. The Negro can be baptized, and that is the end of their privilege. And there is not power on earth to give them any more power. There is no power on earth to give the Negro any blessing beyond baptism. It's impossible. The Lord will not recognize it. He goes on to describe what I'll now tell you happened at the time of Noah. How was the Negro race preserved through the flood? I do believe this is John Taylor speaking, Journal 22, page 304. And after the flood we are told that the curse that had been pronounced upon Cain was continued through Ham's wife, as he had married a wife of that seed. And why did it pass through the flood? Because it was necessary that the devil should have a representation upon the earth as well as God. So Ham's wife that was preserved on the ark was a negro of the seed of Cain. And there was a priesthood purpose in it that the devil would have a representation as well as God. So the negro races continued and today is the day of the Negro, as far as the world is concerned. They have influenced the generations of time. They have mixed their blood with many peoples, until there are many peoples not able to hold the priesthood. Now basically the FLDS Church has taught that um, anyone... Anyone from African descent is is evil and wicked. There's a young boy that that uh, left the FLDS, and he says he remembers going. I think Sanjeev Bhattacharya talks about this in his book. Sanjeev Bhattacharya talks about this in his book about a young man who left the FLDS. He he recounts going to a gas station off of the compound and seeing an African American man for the first time, and he said, "I just stared at him. I I I was taught that these people were animals, and to see a, like a walking animal in person, I was terrified and fascinated. This they justify through biblical teachings, but also through Book of Mormon scripture about 
the curse of Cain and Ham, and teachings that Brigham Young gave as well. Now, those are Gentiles, but of course, apostates are worse. Apostates are Mormons, and they're people that leave the FLDS church. So Mormons, I mean, I meant to say Latter-day Saints. The Latter-day Saint church are considered the most wicked of apostates. Uh, the FLDS believe that Mormons are the great and abominable church of the devil because the LDS church let, let and allowed black people to receive the priesthood and lift the temple ban. FLDS leader Leroy Johnson taught his people that the devil actually appeared to Mormon prophet Spencer W. Kimball in the Salt Lake Temple when he received the revelation to allow people of African descent to receive the priesthood. Here's what Warren Jeff says in 1995, quote, Uncle Roy, the true prophet at that time, knew what had really happened. He said that the personage was Lucifer sitting in the temple of God as God deceiving the people. The revelation that he wrote was that blacks had the right to marry whites and they could go in the temple and receive the priesthood and the blessings of the church. Uncle Roy said that when the revelation was received, the Mormon church became the great and abominable church, the most wicked church on earth. All churches have joined together and are doing what the Mormon church is doing in today's world. All churches have done the same, end quote. Now, of course, Warren Jeffs and other leaders have taught that if you associate with any apostates, that includes members of your own family who happen to break the rules and lose their priesthood, then you are jeopardizing your eternal salvation and you too will be cast out. Not only that, but there are revelations and sermons about angels with flaming swords and on fire coming to burn, basically burn down your house. There's a lot of talk, especially given towards women, that if you don't practice polygamy, you'll be destroyed, which actually means dying in this life. Of course, blood atonement is taught, and there are allegations that uh, in recent years, Warren Jeffs has even issued blood atonement uh, threats against people. I want to talk about the Lost Boys for a minute. That's the the term given to given to hundreds and hundreds of FLDS boys who are competition for the older leaders. Of course, these young boys pose a threat to the leaders because they need to marry as well. Now, this isn't specific to FLDS. We talked about this in the Mormon history of, you know, the Mormon Reformation and even in Southern Utah with Bishop Warren Snow, who is said to have castrated a young boy that wanted to compete with him. So this is not unique to FLDS. I'm going to play a clip from the documentary, Banished the Lost Boys of Polygamy, and let uh, someone tell their own story. And I'm going to link to this documentary so you can also watch it as well. More times than one, I climbed up on a very, very high spot and thought maybe I should just jump off and end all this right now. We have in this community at the present time a wave of immorality among the young people. And when someone is out line and they are sent away, they need to go away. Every two weeks I hear of a few more boys that are coming out. Things have been shaking down pretty hot and heavy for the last year. And been a lot of boys move out of there and leave. Suitcase. They asked me to leave because I had a girlfriend. I'm getting tired of it. Why? 
to fall in my own bed. You could compare some of what goes on here to the Taliban because of a lack of freedom, the control that the uh, religious leaders have over the people. Do you carry a semi-automatic weapon? Yes, I do. I would never come out here unarmed. What most people don't understand that's happening an hour and a half from Vegas is that there are people that still live the law of polygamy, which is against the law. In a society where the young girls are being married off to older men, uh, it just doesn't work mathematically when there's more roosters than hens around. You can't take a child and kick them out and expect the rest of the world to take care of them. They're lost. I got laid off, babe. He says, I need guys that are pro-born, and that's not in your program. How can you fire your own brother? I lost one family, and I, I don't know if I would be able to keep myself alive if I lost this family. We've picked up a follower. We'll just turn around here and see how he likes that. That excursion right there, that's the big wig. I'm sure they was trying to see what the hell you were doing. It'd really be nice if you'd leave. Why, why do you have a problem with me being here? That they'd kill their wife or their kids if the prophet asked them to. Please, you're, now you're following me. It's a total brainwashing. It's a cult. And they are just breeding more of them. All of you are not going to survive the judgments. I don't know exactly how to put up Hitler. You know, he's a narcissistic sociopath. You know, he's condemned them. In their heads, in his head, he wants to see him die. is going to haunt them for the rest of their lives. These young boys are discriminated against. They're given really strict rules, absolute acceptance to them, or they will be kicked out. Now, of course, we know in LDS Mormonism that absolute adherence to rules is very difficult to do without some sort of variance, especially so many rules. So some of the rules include... No association at all with girls. That means that includes members of your own family at times. No talking, no dating, no kissing, no music, no sports, no TV, no movies, no video games, no internet, no late night hours. Your life is to be completely dedicated to religious and school work. And of course, there's temptation as there is in all human experience to experiment with some of these rules. And so if Boys are even rumored to be experimenting with these. They are uh, kicked out of the community. They are set aside as apostates. Now, uh, there's a story in, I think it's Sons of Perdition, of a, of a kid that snuck out of the compound to go watch, I think it was Finding Nemo. He watched Finding Nemo, and he was kicked out because of it. Now, of course, these kids um, receive the Aaronic Priesthood at age 12, and so they, in a sense, um, are stripped of their priesthood as well when this happens. As soon as a boy receives the Melchizedek priesthood, 
the boy's father is no longer in charge of him. It's now the prophet. So you answer your father until you get the Melchizedek priesthood. So it starts with the Aaronic. Then you're supposed to keep yourself worthy to receive the Melchizedek. When you're under the Aaronic priesthood, you follow the priesthood of your father. But as soon as you um, lose, as soon as you get the Melchizedek priesthood, then you follow the prophet. That is who you answer to. Some boys have left the group not being kicked out, but because they cannot adhere to these rules. You have to profess total loyalty to Warren Jeffs and complete submission to him. And if you don't, your family will cut off all of your ties. So if you, you know, everyone has dealt with wayward, if you will, family members. If there's a wayward family person or young man in the community, if it's a young girl, she will often be married to be corrected. If she is a young boy, she, if if the person is a young boy, then the family uses this as a tool and they will oust them from the community. Many of the cases involve kids being kicked out because they won't obey their father's priesthood authorities exactly, which we know is a stage of human development for teenagers to test their limits, to test their rules, to test their parents. So this is a case used often to kick these boys out if they even question their parents or argue or maybe break the rules. It's said that in 2005, when Warren Jeffs was in hiding, he received a report that 900 boys in Short Creek, that there were 900 boys in Short Creek, and 49 boys who were known to be involved in beer parties with girls, and some involved involved illegal drugs. 34 of those boys were not allowed to attend the priesthood meetings. 34 out of 49 were um, punished for this. They were not allowed to, they were considered apostates. One FLDS father explained a difficulty in his home on FLDS Blogspot. He said, quote, In my case, our son left on his own, but not after a lot of turmoil. I'm still working with other children in the home who have been influenced by him as well as others in the home. Three more were asked to leave, but they had a place to go, end quote. Now, oftentimes these boys are shunned if if in the case of some of these lost boys that are interviewed on some of these documentaries, if they want to talk to their parents again, if their mothers will be punished and could lose their children if they talk to their own, their own kids. One boy wrote, quote, My offense was stating my opinion of how I felt about what Warren was doing to the people that I grew up with and cared about. My offense was owning a cell phone. My offense was talking to a girl on my cell phone. My offense was listening to Phil Collins. My offense was watching the DVD set of the series of Friends on a 4-inch DVD player in my closet because that was my only private retreat. My offense was wanting to make more of myself and go to college after it was deemed unholy. My offense was hanging out with my friends. My offense was talking to girls once in a while just to be social, nothing more. My offense was treating the people that live over the hill, which is Centennial Park as normal people and not shunning my relatives from there and not treating them as snakes, as Warren wanted us to do. I could go on and on about these offenses I committed while living in Colorado City. All the good I ever did there will never be brought up because I was just a pawn on Warren's chessboard, and any good I, I did was his doing, and he was the only one who deserved praise for it. I have nothing against the people of Colorado City. They indeed are good friends for the most part. There are the fanatical leaders who are poisoning the place. I'm not looking for any handouts whatsoever. Some of the lost boys do, though, and I think it's sad that their parents will just let them rot away like they never existed, not give any encouragement now that they live on their own and choose a different lifestyle. A parent's love should never be conditional. It doesn't end when the child moves from the home, and neither should communication. 
I know that parents of some of my friends won't even answer a phone call from their own son. End quote. Now, there have been some safe houses set up in St. George and Hurricane and Leverkin, but uh, oftentimes these homes evolve into a sort of party houses because these kids are not t- taught any healthy structures about you know, drugs, alcohol, sex, they're taught absolute unhealthy narratives about them. So they experiment with this. Of course, they have undiagnosed depression. They have a lot of trauma that they're dealing and processing with and not a lot of direction and um, not a lot of teachings to guide their own lives. I see this in the LDS community as well. There is dysfunction often in the ex-Mormon community. Of course, people were taught these narratives about who apostates are and what apostates are going to do. And it sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy for a while because the way that we are taught to think often is to look to our leaders and not look into ourselves. And I've been teaching this, I've been speaking out against this as much as I possibly can, that in order to stop this, we need to stop worshiping our leaders and teach to look within ourselves first before any authority. We look inside first for direction. And this is what happens with the FLDS boys. They they have no sort of inner compass to look to, at least not at first. So these so the last boys sort of get this, you know, um stereotype for being out of control. And they are for a while, but most of them bounce back. Some become alcoholics. There are some cases of boys prostituting themselves in, in Las Vegas for money. But um really it's just a sad commentary on the way that they were raised. Now I'm hoping to meet with Benjamin Bisline. He is someone who's chronicled and lived with the FLDS for years. And he's done a lot of writing. He's probably their biggest historian. We're trying to organize that right now. But uh, here is how he explains the way that the group runs its affairs. Quote, they have decades of experience in business, in hiding from and manipulating the government, and in developing strategies to keep people from knowing about them. They know the law and how to use it to their advantage. These men are highly skilled, articulate communicators. They will publicly and persuasively state what local citizens and authorities want to hear, and then secretly carry out their own agenda, believing that any lie they tell is approved by God. They have done this for 75 years, and there is no reason to think that they will change now. The outward impression they make on strangers' work. They are seen as decent and thoughtful men. End quote. This speaks to what the FLDS boys are thought to do. While girls are trained from birth to basically become good mothers, boys are taught to work hard. They are taught to work at a young age. You can see videos of them, of young boys, as young as seven, riding on complex farm equipment. It is absolutely a problem. There are also allegations of human trafficking. Since church leaders have absolute power to decide who will marry whom, they have power to remove wives and children from a man if they decide, decide he isn't loyal enough. This this involves removing women against their will from home to home and sometimes from group to group so they can move from one property to another. They could traffic across state lines to Utah to Texas. Women are commodities. They're traded. Uh, Nadine is going to talk about this in her podcast about why Warren Jess was busted, but it was basically through a trade of young girls. There was a recent report of a young girl being kidnapped. I think she was on on the Utah border. I'll link to that as well. And when we say kidnapped, I mean, their family members are usually involved, but it's it's complicated. It's a lot of trafficking women and children across lines against their will. 
Now, excommunication is not unique to FLDS Church. It, Of course, we've had a very prominent excommunication recently in the LDS Church with John DeLynn, but there's sort of this unprecedented severity. Nadine will talk about this as well, but you should know that it wasn't Warren Jeffs that that instigated this. Leroy Johnson first removed someone back in the 70s. Jim Blackmore, in 1976, was the first member forced out of his home in Colorado City. He was no longer permitted by Leroy Johnson to live in the house that he built in the late 1950s. Jim didn't back down, and he filed a lawsuit, and... The FLDS had never taken, up until that point, the FLDS had never taken a man's house from the man before. They had sort of bullied him to leave and uh, threatened him to leave, but they had never actually physically taken his house. So this caused a lawsuit that first brought this group into some prominence. In 1980, Le- Leroy Johnson received a revelation that told him to clean up the town, and so he commissioned a local man named Sam Barlow to make that happen. So they start attempting to evict people, and the first eviction attempt was against a widow with eight kids. And she tried to stay, and she tried to fight it, but finally she was bullied into leaving. She agreed to leave. Barlow started using intimidation by what is now called the God Squad, uh, where it's just young men that beat up people that they judge to be apostates. The FLDS would uh, lose some legal battles regarding the United Effort Plan. And of course, you know, when people would sue and say, you can't do this, the FLDS would actually lose. They would claim that they, you know, held everyone's property. And Rulon Jeff's blames this defeat on the sins of the people. Warren Jeffs would later explain, quote, Uncle Roy told us all it takes is one or two covenant breakers in order for the Lord to curse this people. In the midst of the court case where the apostates have tried to destroy the United Effort Plan, one or two years into the lawsuit, President Jeffs called upon his people to fast and pray. We were so completely defeated at that certain court hearing, the Spirit of the Lord told President Jeffs why there were many immoral people among us. He stood up in a meeting and said, I am calling for this people to confess their sins. If you've been immoral, come and confess and let us clean up this people. Within about three years' time, there were over 60 cases of of immorality that were confessed to him. Because of the sins among this people, we have not triumphed in the courts. I hope and pray that we are clearing up now and our prophet will have people that the Lord will protect. By the lifting up process... This people will finally be cleaned up. Those who are not pure will be left behind to be destroyed. End quote. Now, this speaks to something that Nadine's going to talk a lot more about. Within the FLDS community, there are at least two known subgroups. There is the group considered to be lifted up that are living the complete united order, and then there's sort of a less righteous group. You're designated into those groups, and uh, the united order group is considered more righteous, and they're given more benefits. The FLDS have always been taught to yearn for Zion, which is to live in a society free of sin and contention and sort of live this united communal order. They consider Zion to be heaven on earth. That's how they mean to uh, interpret the word Zion. So in lots of Mormon theology, Enoch during the days of Noah was a great prophet who built up the city of holiness that he referred to as Zion. And Zion was sort of the safe, safe place for the righteous to live. And eventually the, you know, these people were so righteous that the, and the world was so wicked, this city was lifted up and taken from the earth before the flood. Now, this is sort of what Rulon Jeffs 
really perpetuates, and I talked about this in the first episode, this idea of the lifting up. The FLDS want to build themselves into such a righteous city, hoping to build themselves up. But naturally, they can't because there's some wicked amongst them, and that's why they've separated themselves into two groups, one that is more righteous that they're hoping can be pure and spotless before God. Warren Jeff said in February of 1996, quote, Now we are to become a united people that will build a city called Zion, heaven on earth. First, we must have a heaven in our heart, body, and mind. Then, by keeping the spirit of our God, our homes will become pure. Gather families together, build a city, then build more cities. The people having children and those children keeping sweet, getting married, and having families. Then there are more cities on the land where there's a heaven on earth and will grow into the earth as the earth changes. End quote. It's likely that the Yearning for Zion Ranch that was built in Texas is one of those cities that Jeffs had plans. He taught over and over that, you know, you had to follow the prophet and it and forget the world. So he was sort of building what is considered to be a very big compound in Texas, also known as a Yearning for Zion Ranch. Nadine Hansen is going to talk about how the Yearning for Zion Ranch comes into play with all of the legal problems. It's likely that Jeffs really literally wanted the Yearning for Zion Ranch to be a city of Enoch. And this is why uh, it's, it's unclear why they built the temple there, but this is one of the theories. An important part of the plan is was to only invite the most righteous people to the Yearning for Zion Ranch, those who were the most loyal followers. So he had to cast out any dissenters. Warren Jeffs believed and taught that this is what Enoch did in his city too. So he kicked out anyone who doubted his authority. Here's what Warren Jeffs said in 1995, quote, The only reason that Enoch was able to perfect a people was simply because he labored hard to cast out the midst of his men women, and children who would entertain in their minds a doubt. All you need to do is be removed from this work to just think what President Jeff says can't be done. You can't be used. The Lord is choosing now who will go forward and complete faith with complete faith that what the prophet says can be done. Enoch has had to cast men out because they persisted in leaving people with a doubt in their minds, end quote. So, you know, he, of course, he kicked people out of Colorado City. Some people took their families. A lot of people didn't take their families. And he required strict perfection and obedience. The Yearning for Zion Ranch became such an obsession of Jeff's. He wrote a hymn he named Yearning for Zion. In the hymns are the words, quote, Imagine the people of Enoch of old, trained in the order of heaven, a beautiful city the Lord called his own and forever made his abode. Coming to join with the Zion on earth, when finally the earth meets its rest, a kingdom established in celestial laws, a people the Lord can accept. A new Jerusalem, it will be a land of refuge, a city of peace, end quote. A lot of FLDS people are allegedly dreaming of the day that the yearning for Zion ranch will be lifted up. Now, of course, the raid that they did in the yearning for Zion ranch, they entered the temple's uh, the FBI, the federal agents and local law enforcement entered the temple in the Yearning for Zion Ranch. They seized a lot of the property. And, of course, they found the scandalous things like the bed in the temple, which Nadine is going to talk about. But uh, this considered to desecrate the temple. It was no longer pure. So it's unclear whether the the people in the Yearning for Zion Ranch believe that they will still be raised up because of this. It is likely that they believe that their own sin 
sinfulness and their own wickedness brought this upon themselves. It's also worth noting that uh, invitations were made to travel to the Yearning for Zion Ranch around 2002. Homes of full families um, would be full one day and be empty the next. And this caused a lot of people to have hurt families. One of the members described this as musical houses, that it would rotate and next thing you know, a whole house would be empty. Um, some of the people felt betrayed by their prophet because they weren't asked and some be- felt betrayed by their family because they would wake up in the morning and the house next to them would be gone and they had no idea. I want to talk about the Winston-Blackmore split for a minute because I talked about this in the episode I did about different fundamentalist groups. But Winston Blackmore is an interesting case. Rulon Jeffs had appointed Winston Blackmore as a bishop in the colony of Bountiful, Canada. And I've linked to this documentary on one of the other episodes. So if you haven't listened to that episode, I would highly recommend going back to, to the episodes. It's episode 82, different modern day fundamentalist groups where we talk about what, where the Blackmore group is living right now and how they are faring. But basically, Winston Blackmore was asked to to be the bishop of this colony up there. He was given certain authorities, um, like those to perform marriages and forgive sins of people. Uh, Winston himself married several underage girls. However, even though Rulon Jeffs give, gave him permission, Warren Jeffs knew that this would be a problem for him, and so did the Barlow boys. Uh, they they knew that Winston was not intimidated by their rule like other priesthood leaders and other bishops were. There were nearly 1,500 members in Canada under Winston's leadership. So as Rulon is getting old and dying, Warren starts to make the changes, and Winston is resisting these changes that Warren Jess is making on the community. This, of course, threatens Warren. They start to challenge one another, Winston believed that Warren was being very dishonest in the way he was representing his father and his rule. Uh, we talked about this a little bit in episode one where Winston talks about how Warren misrepresented Rulon's last days. And then something happened. Uh, there was a young girl who rebelled against Warren Jeffs. It's said that he assigned her to marry one of his brothers when she was 16. She was underage. Of course, she didn't want to marry him. She tried to say no. And three weeks later, she left the community with a different brother to escape. She actually left with a different brother of Warren Jess. The two began living together. But after a while, they began to fear that uh, they were in a lot of danger, just even escaping and rebelling. And so they came back to seek forgiveness. But they wanted forgiveness from someone other than Warren. They were really worried about his wrath. So they approached Winston Blackmore. Winston contacted Rulon Jeffs through the phone, and he was trying to get permission to perform the forgiveness blessing on them, and Rulon agreed that, that he could do so. Warren Jeffs becomes infuriated that Blackmore bypassed him in the chain of authority and called Rulon Jeffs directly. Warren then does something that causes a problem. He calls Winston Blackmore, tells him he's being removed as bishop. Winston would say later, quote, Uncle Rulon did not even know who was on the phone and had to ask Warren what was going on. Warren dictated to him what he should say, end quote. Then there was a public meeting held in Colorado City with a conference call to a lot of the members up in Canada. 
Warren is on the phone and he says, listen, Winston Blackmore has been aspiring to take over the prophet. He wants to be beyond the prophet. You guys need to stay away from him. He's wicked. Stay away from him. Rule and Jeffs was still the prophet at the time, but he was very sick. But it said that he was still backing Winston Blackmore at this time. Uh, Rule and Jeffs said, if you people in Canada just stand behind Elder Winston Blackmore, it'll be okay. And Warren quickly said on the conference call, no, Father, that is not right. Rulon then changed his mind and said, oh, yes, do what Brother Warren has told you, end quote. So Winston, infuriated and humiliated, refuses to accept this. Warren demands that uh, Winston Blackmore leave because of it and get off of UEP property. Winston refuses to do so. And the end result is a split. Half of the members in Canada following after Winston and the other half remaining true to to Warren, and those allegiances are still split today. So now, of course, with their law of apostates, this would have broken family members up directly. These people up in Canada are, you know, all descendants of like the same six families or something. So they're all related and they can't even talk to one another because they're considered apostates. This has been good for the Winston Blackmore sect. They've become way more progressive. They have forbidden underage marriages. Even though Winston Blackmore married underage girls, He's sort of seen the light in this, and he does not allow them, according to what he says. I'm going to be talking to Sam Brower to see what he thinks he's been investigating them as well. But by all accounts, Winston Blackmore seems like a decent guy just trying to do what is best. A member loyal to Winston wrote, quote, Here in Canada, we have always been taught to think for ourselves. When Warren first started telling people to pray for the end of the world to come, most of us started thinking this is way too weird. One of the things we have been taught is that if it seems weird, it probably is. Then when he tried replacing our bishop in Canada, the main reason he gave was that our bishop said the world wasn't going to end and that God was the only one who would predict the end. We decided we had about as much as we could take. When Warren and his followers left our church to start their own, we stayed believing the same as we have all our lives, end quote. So that kind of talks about the split. Now, what happens to Warren in the meantime is he's growing in power. He is adding more prescriptions. He's accruing women. He is saving them for himself. He's kicking out these young men. Lots of members are taking it. He's sort of dividing the wheat from the chaff. So if you are considered more righteous, you're, it's easier, I guess, to take what Warren is saying. Of course, there's a young girl named Elisa Wall. She's written a book about it, Stolen Innocence, and I will link to that as well. She talks about being forced to marry someone. I believe it's her cousin. An abusive man that didn't respect her. She He raped her repeatedly. So she escapes. This brings local attention to, to the FLDS and soon to be national attention. So Warren Jeffs goes in hiding. He takes Naomi, who was his father's widow and now one of his favorite wives. Naomi is implicated in a lot of uh, the temple recordings that Warren Jeffs did. So anyway, Elisa Wall's case made Warren go in hiding. Warren is captured in being an accomplice to rape because he arranged the marriage. But what he has in the car is a recording of these heaven, heavenly sessions. And this is where the heavy tr- trigger warnings come in because they are pretty terrible. But I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the heavenly sessions. Nadine is going to go way more into detail about this stuff on our next episode. So Warren you know, was on I-15 in Nevada and on August 20, 2006, this is when he is pulled over after being on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. Now, Warren has been into hiding. It's said that he visited 
Las Vegas. It said he went to strip clubs. It said that he did all kinds of things that would be deemed as completely hypocritical to his followers. His followers, of course, dismissed this as Satan trying to blacken his name. A trooper would pull him over in a red Cadillac Escalade that he had bought in Colorado. In the car were 27 stacks of money, each containing $2,500. There were two wigs, 14 cell phones, three iPods, and a picture of Warren with his father, Rulon. There was also the priesthood record from 2004 into 2006, and Warren really hoped that these records would not be made public. But about a quarter of the records have been made public. And, of course, the Heavenly Sessions tape was in there. Now, Nadine will talk about what happened with that. It was on hold for about five years. The Heavenly Sessions are something that Warren Jeffs, I think, will become known for. Basically, he would experience Heavenly Sessions. He explained that sometimes he'd be conscious during these sessions, and other times he'd be unconscious unconscious. During these times, he was supposed to feel all the consuming fire from heaven. He talks about being the marred servant. And this, of course, comes from a scripture in Isaiah. Many Christian scholars believe that the marred servant is supposed to be Jesus Christ. Mormon scholars believe that there is a dual meaning referring to Jesus Christ. And uh, it's hard to know, but Warren just appears to believe that he is a servant and is careful about teaching this in secret. So he does these heavenly sessions, which are sort of like these revelation processes that I think he believed Joseph Smith had as well. Evidently, when he's having these heavenly sessions, these these communions with God, someone is supposed to assist him during these sessions. He has made it clear that it has to be a most trusted wife who has full, you know, faith and loyalty to him. And one of the ordinances involved in in assisting him is the ordinance of comfort and renewal. Usually it's said that it was his young wife, Naomi, but sometimes his wife, Ida, was also trained. He says in a recording, quote, I went into session, conscious at times and unconscious at times, with Ida sitting against the wall watching. She was so determined to do this right. She was writing down the certain the time certain things happened, and I would have her report to me every hour or two, and I marveled what the Lord was allowing her to see. The physical twisting and turning and suffering was more than she had seen before, and it brought her to tears many times. Yet in her reports, she rejoiced in the Lord and prayed for me to be strengthened, and I knew I was in the Lord's hands. End quote. That, w- that came from the priesthood record of 2004. Apparently, in one of these sessions, he trains Ida to assist. He tells her that he's the marred servant. And he reads her out of the third uh, book of Nephi, chapters 20 and 21. And he tells her a lot of what he's asked Naomi to do, and he's trying to teach it to her as well. As this doctrine starts to develop in Warren's mind, he takes this a step further. He starts to believe he is atoning for the sins of his followers in these heavenly sessions, similar to the way that Jesus atoned for the sins of mankind. At one point... Warren Jeff starts comparing himself to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He talks about Ida falling asleep during a session, and this greatly angers Warren. He says, quote, and this, of course, comes from the priesthood record that was seized. And all through that early Monday morning through the night, Ida just slept. I went, I would go through, I would awake from heavenly session with a severity upon me to wake her up to pray more fervently for me. But she did not do it. And by 5 a.m. in the morning, I saw it was enough. Even she had failed me and offended the heavenly powers, end quote. So he talks, he sort of 
compares himself to the experience of Jesus in great agony and how Christ's servants fell asleep and now Ida is falling asleep during this session. Warren Jeffs claims that sometimes these sessions would paralyze him and it would be hard to even walk and move around. Here's what Naomi recorded uh, about one of the heavenly sessions. She would say, quote, The Lord took you onto a session light last night at 1230. Your body started to tremble. I could feel it coming on you for about an hour before that. Your body trembled and jolted and jerked. You turned on your right side in your chair. You were in that position for most of the night until about 4 a.m. this morning. At 4 a.m. you said, yes, sir, yes, sir. The Lord wants them to make sure the footings of the temple are exact before they are poured, before they can make sure that their walls are straight. End quote. Now, the writer of the FLDS blogs, blog spot concludes that there could be some reasons for these heavenly sessions. Um, that either they were indeed heavenly sessions from God, they were se- sessions where he was possessed by evil spirits, they were faked, or they were self-induced, perhaps related to a physical ailment. And uh, the, the writer concludes that there's likely the last one. Um, the writer seems to believe that they are self-induced seizures. Uh, there's evidence to believe that maybe Warren Jeffs has some some sort of physical ailment related to tension and anxiety that are making him do this because it appears that Warren actually really believed he was having these heavenly sessions. Now, another symptom uh, that is explored is Warren Jeff's aversion to the color red. This uh, is dangerous due to, to people who have photosensitive epilepsy. So those are some of the explanations for these heavenly sessions. Of course, the heavenly sessions become more and more intense. A Warren Jeffs is told that Naomi is dead, and um, he receives this revelation that her funeral should be on a Saturday, and she should be buried at the YFC cemetery. He w- began having more and more visions. Then, of course, he his sessions start to attack him personally, saying how wicked and um, sinful he is. He's too earthly-minded and weak. This is why he says his uh, prophecies start to fail. And of course, when he's in prison, he would have a phone conversation with his with his brother Nephi, where he says, "I am no longer the prophet." Nadine will talk about this as well. But uh, it's interesting to note that he he had one, I guess, if you could say, a lucid moment where he says, "I've never been the prophet. I have." done really sinful things. I'm not the prophet. I never was the prophet. And I have been deceived by the powers of evil. And Brother William E. Jessup has been the prophet since Father's passing, since the passing of my father. And I have been the most wicked man in this dispensation in the, eye, in the eyes of God in taking charge of my father's family when the Lord his God told him not to because he could not hear him, could not hear his voice because I did not hold priesthood and I direct my former family to look to Brother William E. Jessup and I will not be calling today or ever again. Now, of course, during one of the heavenly sessions, this is where uh, Jeffs is alleged to have um, taken a young 12-year-old girl and had sexual relations with her with 
some women involved. Definitely Naomi and possibly Ida. And and Nadine will talk about that as well. But I'm going to play a clip from his heavenly session. Raise your hands if you're not able to participate in administering. Let's exert our faith for more revelation to come concerning the sacred building and that the rock will come forth and a people above all will be one. All the physical blessings will result from the oneness, the spiritual gifts being in place. And this quorum of twelve, ladies, is vital. You must be one. Exert, study, and labor in oneness. Oneness is the love of God perfected, always devoted, always increasing in the heavenly gifts. And in connection with me and each other, I want all of you to learn the heavenly gentle touch, where when you touch someone, the fire of the Spirit of God is felt by that person, by that child, by the thing you're handling. Heavenly Father's Spirit is working through you now, from now on. I would like to know if any of this group is having trouble with bad dreams, evil desires, evil thoughts, trying to thrust upon you. Since you've been participating in the higher order of administering, If so, you can remain in the waiting room and one by one talk to me. I'm going to let Nadine tell us the rest of the story about Warren Jeffs and where he is now. But basically, the current leadership is still functioning with Warren as a prophet and some other um, leaders trying to take over in his stead. Former LDS cartoonist Cal Grandal stated on his Facebook page the other day, religion is like Disneyland. Yes, it's fantasy, but it keeps the streets clean and safe. I feel like this is the best way to sum up the experiences of those who have lived in the FLDS community. Many um, of us want to believe that all FLDS are scheming evil predators, but the reality is the vast majority of these people are hardworking, good, honest people full of faith. Not all of the families experience abuse. Not all of them um, are cruel. They have good memories. They have family picnics. They they love each other and they try hard. And I think that that gets lost in these tales of evil and deceit. I do think that in this particular way, the streets are kept clean for these people. It is safe. I talked to a former member who said it was the most beautiful safety to have this sort of worldview. The world seemed very small and very secure, and you knew what to do. You knew how to respond to evil. It was very much laid out for you. It was very, very safe in that way. Of course, they had, they celebrate holidays fondly. They, um, they have a harvest fest. They hang out. Uh, they celebrate the 24th of July. That's a big deal there. They have a great time. One former FLDS member wrote of this memory, quote, 
Oh, back to the good things about Short Creek. I loved the community programs and the Harvest Fest and the park fundraisers and the 4th and the 24th of July. Adorable ditching on Valentine's Day and going for walks on summer evenings and drives with the family on Sunday evenings. Hiking in Water Canyon, baseball, baseball in Maxwell Park, homemade evening, homemade everything, yummy food, talking with the family and friends that came down at dinner time. No TV, singing for everything, the dances, taking turns, staying up all night to make the sorghum, helping out anyone and everyone on Saturday work projects, and oh, when someone lost a loved one, even if it was a baby or small small child, 4,000 plus people came to the funeral, and not having to lock my doors at night and being able to leave my keys in my car, these things I truly miss, but most of all, I miss my family that are still out there. I miss them so much. You know, I just realized that is what it is. Everyone was family out there, end quote. The community played together. They ice skate. They swim. There was a dance that was held every Friday night and a movie on alternate Fridays. Fred Jessup would do a stage play projection every year or so, uh, using the same scripts over and over again. They, they... Still find joy, and that's something to remember when we talk about these people and these women. We like to say, oh, they're all just brainwashed, um, but that's not fair because people find hope in, in dire circumstances, and there are beautiful lights of shining uh, humanity in all of these cases, and I hope that when we talk about these people, especially the people that have been victimized, that we do treat their stories as victims. That, you know, I've seen some terrible memes around where they make fun of the wives, the way they look, talk about their appearance, um, sexualize them. That is just wrong to do. These are, these are our friends and neighbors and brothers and sisters, and they're not that different than the LDS people. They were just happened to be born to different family members. We're all just certain shades of this. So uh, I just want to keep that in mind after we've been talking about the horror of this community. So everyone, thank you again for listening to, uh, to this episode. And um, thank you for your support. Please become a subscriber. You can go to yourpolygamy.com and give a small subscription amount every month. Thank you for listening and we look forward to hearing our another episode of the Here Polygamy Podcast. Friend. When I bless my neighbor, then I am blessing.